Well, first of all, I'd like to thank the organizers uh, for this invitation. This is actually, for me personally, a really in interesting experience because uh, I, in some sense, became a linguist because I could not study aesthetics. Uh, I was an unhappy economics major in college, and I uh, was... I wanted to study aesthetics. I didn't want to change my university. And I went to the dean and I said, so look, you know, I want to study aesthetics. I was interested in poetry, basically, and what, how can you know when a piece of poetry is art? That was my question. And the guy said, well, I'm sorry, we don't have anyone in the philosophy department who devotes themselves to the topic of aesthetics. But if you go to the English department, there's this linguistics course. Maybe you'll find that interesting. And I... Didn't know what linguistics was, but uh, exactly 30 years later, here I am, uh, hopefully bringing something from linguistics to aesthetics. So. Um, I don't know if my comments will take 30 minutes or not, but uh, we can use the rest of the time for discussion if they don't. Um, so what we've seen so far, this is mainly a commentary on uh, Sam and Aaron's paper. Uh, and so just to remind ourselves what they saw, basically they have observed experimentally that aesthetic adjectives like beautiful uh, are different both from relative adjectives like long, so-called relative adjectives, and so-called absolute adjectives like bent. Uh, and then the question is, why is that? And then Tim's talk, in some sense, I felt was like a... Uh, a plea to, well, n not see these things as so different, and uh, my goal here is to try to somehow reconcile those two views. Okay. Um, basically, what I'm going to do, uh, because I think, uh, you know, I really don't know anything about aesthetics, but I can say something about adjectives, is uh, talk a bit about the factors that influence the ascription of gradable properties and that I think are relevant for the results that uh, the experiments showed. Uh, and these are basically three that I'm going to talk about. First of all, the way the standard for applying these adjectives truthfully is determined. Second, uh, whether there are or are not multiple adjectives that can be used to characterize different degrees of the gradable property that's being mentioned. Uh, so this is basically contrasting the issue, you know, the, the, the case of tall and short, which both characterize height, versus ugly and beautiful, which are arguably not characterizing the same thing. And then the third uh, relevant characteristic, I think, is what uh, has come to be known uh, recently as a particular sort of uni or multi-dimensionality of the property in question. And um, in all cases, what you know, I feel a bit responsible for this, uh, what has become like really a focus on this scale and standard way of thinking about adjective semantics, but what I'd like to do is you know, emphasize that at the end of the day, we are ascribing properties and the nature of those properties is extremely important and should not get lost in all of the discussion about the scalar semantics. Um, and what I'm going to do first is just uh, say a few words about gradability. So my views on gradability have changed somewhat since uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I mean, uh, some aspects are the same. But basically, when you use an adjective to ascribe a gradable property, and a gradable property is one 
the way I see it, because I discovered in a conversation before we started that there are many ways you can understand what it might mean to be gradable. How I understand it and how linguists in general understand it is uh, this property that we're referring to using the adjective can be used, you can order individuals according to the amount of that property that they manifest. And actually, to just come back to this comment that was made in the, your question in relation to nouns and adjectives, I think that there's a, 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 something very different about adjectives versus nouns in one respect, which is that adjectives in general describe um, properties that live on individuals that are fundamentally characterized using nominal expression. So I subscribe to the view that there's a very different, uh, there's a very deep difference between something being an instance of some type of category that we have created, you know, dog, cat, or whatever, versus an individual bearing, if you want, a, a trope, right? So, uh, and, and that, I think, is partly responsible for the differences that you get in the behavior of nouns versus adjectives. But in other so I, I do think there's an important difference, but at some bigger level, there are also deep commonalities in the aspects of their use that have to do with categorization. So anyway, um, when we use an adjective to ascribe a gradable property, we need to know two things. First of all, what is the property? And this was, in some sense, what Tim was focusing on. Uh, and people sometimes talk about dimensions or scales. Uh, and this is something, I mean, this also came up in the talk, but I think it is extremely important to emphasize that what the adjective actually is picking out is very, very, very heavily dependent on the noun, you know, the, 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 well, let's say the object to which we are applying it to. Let's say the noun with which it's combining, if you want to think of it in language terms. Uh, to the point that it has become, uh, I think, a big area of study, especially in computational semantics, to look at what they call the co-compositional characteristic of adjectives and nouns. That is, the interpretation of the noun, in some sense, depends on information that comes to it from its argument, which is not a way that people are used to thinking about these things in sort of classic uh, semantics, but which I'm absolutely convinced is, is essential. And there are logics that actually allow you to do this, if anyone is curious. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, on the basis of what sort of criteria the adjective is ascribed, which I, I've, this is actually what amounts to the standard, but I've phrased things in this way for a reason that you'll see in just a minute. To give you just one example of how you get this kind of variability, which is essentially, if you want, a kind of polysemy, you know, it's not the same for the climate to be dry as for a piece of paper to be dry. And you can see that in the kinds of modification that you can use with each of these cases of, of dry. So you can say the climate is very dry, but it would be very odd to say the climate is completely dry uh, because you're talking about some property of average amount of moisture in the atmosphere, whereas a piece of paper can be described as completely dry, because you can talk about the extension of moisture across the surface. All right. So um, these things are things that have to be fixed, uh, you know, that are determined in context and have to be fixed in any kind of discussion before you go on to um, talk about what is actually uh, at stake with these. Now, um, as we've seen in a couple of talks, so Chris and I 
developed this uh, sort of typology of relative and absolute adjectives. The terms were not original to us, but we connected them to uh, the scalar properties that we had observed in adjectives and especially to uh, degree modifier phenomena. Um, and the way we characterized relative adjectives was to say that, first of all, the standard for applying an adjective uh, property was determined by a comparison class. All right, that was one of the things we said, so it was not, um, you need to know what sort of things you're talking about in order to know if they are tall. It's not the same for children as it is for adults, for instance. Um, relative adjectives, as, as was said earlier, have been characterized as not lending uh, to crisp judgments about applicability. Here you can look at these two children. It might not even be that easy to see or decide whether either one of them is tall, but if you asked, uh, you know, give me the tall child, uh, you know, this would be a case where I would probably refuse because the difference between the two of them is not somehow significant enough. And of course, there's the whole sub-industry of the Sorites paradox that will uh, inform uh, about this sort of, of problem. And then uh, something that Chris said in this paper, this 2007 paper, and that, that I will disagree with, is that uh, when you ha that the relative adjective is not characterized by having minimal or maximum standards on the scale. So there, there was, I mean, we noticed this generalization that when you have these context-dependent when you need a comparison class, it's very often the case because there's no minimum or maximum value on the scale. Uh, so for instance, there's no maximum value of tallness, right? And you might say, well, there's zero height, but if you look at short, it turns out that short doesn't actually end up at no height, but it kind of goes infinitely down to, you know, there's a kind of limit there. So, uh, and you can see that you don't say things like half tall or completely short, right? Whereas absolute adjectives such as closed are different. So you don't need a comparison class. You can make crisp judgments. You can look at this is kind of a double door. And you can clearly see that this door inside is not closed. I think anybody will tell you that. As long as you can see that there's some aperture, nobody's going to question that. So you can make a crisp judgment. You don't need any kind of comparison class. It's very clear. And again, what Chris uh, claimed in that 2007 paper was that uh, absolute adjectives pick as their standard either a minimum or maximum value on a scale. All right, and he connected this to a whole other set of things that I don't have time to get into. Um, I don't know how long I've been talking, but I, I don't have that many slides, but I've lost complete track of time. Anyway. Um, but I, uh, now we're going to do like a little experiment, and actually we'll see one of Kristen Surrett's uh, test items since that came up before. What were her test items like? We'll see her test item for long. Um, but you, and of course, you can say half closed and completely open. So when you can say half or completely, you have the diagnostic for having a scale which has minimum and maximum values, right? Which makes sense. You can go all the way to the end. And if it has bounds on both ends, you can take a proportion. Um, in a paper that I wrote, actually, as a response, so at one point, Chris had a workshop and asked me to comment on that uh, 2007 paper. And actually, this led me to really rethink a lot of what I thought about gradable adjectives and to put a lot more focus on the cognitive activity that is going on behind 
the use of adjectives. And the first thing that uh, I observed was that, well, actually, we had observed this long before, but it just was one of these data points that if you have the approach to the world where everything wants to be as neat as possible, you try to pretend it doesn't exist. If you like mess, you bring these sorts of examples out. But first of all, um, one thing is that the type of standard the adjective has, whether it's relative or absolute in the sense that it yields crisp judgments or not, is not totally correlated with whether the scale has endpoints or not. And you can see this in examples like this one, which is constructed out of two examples that I found attested. So, uh, you know, an adjective like familiar it can be used in a relative sense, that is, for a student who's just moved here, she's very familiar with the class of routines and her teacher's expectations. So we're clearly talking about this student in relation to other students and the degree of familiarity that they have with the, the class and so forth. And you can go on to say, in fact, she's completely familiar with them, making it clear that there is a maximum degree of familiarity. Right. So I think that, and I don't think that there's really a difference in the, in the content of the familiarity property in the two cases. I think it's just a statistical tendency that you tend to use one sort of standard uh, with, you tend to use uh, absolute standards with closed scale adjectives. Well, actually, I think you, you do tend to have absolute adjectives with closed scale adjectives, but they don't necessarily have to be relative standards with open scale adjectives. Right? Now, about the relative and absolute uh, distinction itself, I started to think about long and uh, full especially, and I got very interested in the idea that when you use relative adjectives, what you're really doing is exactly what Tim said, actually. That is, you have an, a sort of predetermined in the context decision about the classification you're going to make of individuals according to some property. Long, short. And what you do is you ascribe long based on the similarity of the object you're interested in to the other objects that are under consideration, such that you basically cluster according to the number of properties that you're actually looking at. All right? We're going to do a little person, you know, like individual experiment in a minute to see exactly what I mean by this. I call that classification by similarity. And in the case of absolute adjectives, I think what you're doing is a kind of property ascription that's grounded in rule, in a kind of rule-based classification. Um, this actually goes back to this question that came up before. So um, classification by rule, basically, the difference is that you have a kind of abstract, call it what you want, and you can call it truth conditions, you can call it a prototype, you can call it whatever, but that thing is abstract and you basically look at the individual that you are interested in and you compare it to that. If it meets the criteria, great. The adjective holds, if it doesn't, then it doesn't. And there can be slippage and negotiation and whatever, but that's fundamentally different from taking some object and saying, how close is that object, how similar is it to some other particular? All right. Um, I should say that with a particular adjective, the two sorts of classification may end up happening. I'll come back to that in a second. I should also say that this distinction between classification by similarity and by rule uh, comes, has come to me from uh, a paper by Han and Nick Chater, Ulrika Han and Nick Chater, it's that they are psychologists, 
Uh, and they actually argue that these two types of classification are distinct, right, which is something that, uh, you know, people might question. They have arguments for that. You can also look at uh, this 1989 paper by Manfred Beer, which, which uh, talks about contrastive versus non-contrastive norms, which I think is basically similar to this uh, relative versus absolute distinction as I'm characterizing it here. Now, what, what exactly do I mean by this? And this will eventually bring us to the experiments. So this is one of Kristen Surrett's test items for long. Now ask yourself the question, is this long? Right? I dare anyone to answer yes or no, right? Why not? Because you don't have the short one to help you. You don't have the long and the short ones to help you decide, right? This is fundamental, I think. This is a very, very deep property of this kind of property. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting to contrast this case of long and the fact that it's this stick and you have no idea what kind of, whether this is a stick, well, I, I suppose it's a little test item, you know, it could be a 50 meter long blue painted beam for all, you know, for all we know. It's interesting to contrast it with tall and to come back to this question that came up before because if you were to show two human beings and ask which one is the tall one, well, you might say tall should work just the same as long, but what's crucially different is that you know, anybody of a certain age has enough experience with human beings to have an idea, an abstract idea of what height should be like. Now, um, the relationship between absolute and relative and classification by rule and classification by similarity uh, it sort of starts to come apart a bit here, but, but I think that that distinction whether you're actually looking at two things and saying, okay, between these two things I'm going to make a distinction, I'll take this one and ascribe it the property, versus I have an abstract idea, a reference of some sort, let me see how these two things compare with that. Um, that has to be something that you have to be very careful to control for, I think, in the experiments. Um, if you compare absolute adjectives, and I, I choose full, um, and I like this example because it's a photograph by a photographer called David Chalkley, and it's called Wine Glass to Full. Right? And uh, what's nice about this is, number one, I think anybody who has enough restaurant or wine tasting experience will be willing to say, okay, yeah, that's full. Number two, it, you can get a relatively crisp judgment on this, I think, because filling, the degree of filling for the wine glass is calculated based, it, it's based on the proportion of volume, right? It's true that it's not a maximum or a minimum value. It's in the middle. But I think what it has in common, this particular standard with the maximum and minimum standards, is the fact that you have a way of easily calculating it without directly comparing individuals, because people are able to calculate proportions, sort of Boom, more or less. And I think that's partly what makes the absolute adjectives behave the way that they do. You are able to make that decision very clearly without having to look at a set of particulars and say, okay, these are like these and these other ones are different. And 
and so, you know, aesthetic predicates, I haven't thought about them in the context of this, but you could ask yourself, uh, this comes up on a Google search of ugly sculpture. I don't, you know, I'm not here to make evalu uh, an evaluation of it. I don't even know where it's from. But I, I think if, just looking at it on the face of it, you know, I might be, I don't feel like this is like long, right? It's more like full. But of course, it's also true that there are a lot of other questions that have to be answered before I'm willing to make a decision. And that brings me to the next part, which has to do with, um, well, it, or it actually it will bring me to the third part, which has to do with dimensionality. All right. Um, so, so actually, I think one thing I really liked about that paper is I, I think it does bring to the fore a kind of case where clearly we do use these adjectives very similarly to relative adjectives because we cluster, we also have comparison classes that we use in order to decide if something is beautiful or not. That, that is different from closed. I mean, closed, there's never a comparison class if it's really the door is open or closed. But I think there's a bit of a disconnect that needs more looking into between the kind of diagnostics we had for comparison classes and then this, and what they're used for, and then this cognitive distinction between really you know, needing particulars and sorting them according to their similarity versus having some kind of abstract idea. Right? And, and those are, are related to each other but slightly independent and I think that would be interesting to investigate further. All right, just very briefly about dimensions. I bring this up mainly because there was this concern in the paper about ugly and if there was a minimum standard and if there wasn't what was going on. Um, so as Beerwish notes, and I think as I already said, there are some adjectives that share a similar, you know, a single dimension. So straight and bent and long and short both do that. But uh, as Beerwish points out, and then there was this reference to Marcin Morzicki, I didn't know that he had also made this observation. Beautiful and ugly, even though we think of them as opposites, actually probably don't share exactly the same dimension. That is, the components that lead you to call something beautiful might not be exactly analog, you know, they're not going to necessarily be totally symmetric, I'm guessing, I mean, in the case of ugly. And the same could be true of elegant and inelegant. I mean, and probably any time you have opposites that are characterized, you know, in terms of the negation, the absence of some property, that's likely to happen. And so I think that's also something that, um, you know, going back to the results of the fourth experiment, for me, like I said in my comment, I think I said this in the question period, I, you know, I wouldn't draw too many conclusions based on the fact that people were saying that there was, nobody was saying there was zero beauty or almost zero beauty. You could still perhaps um, be willing to say that there's a kind of uh, standard that you, you know, just look at this. I mean, you, you know, you might, say, okay, for me, having the asymmetry in the eyes might be sufficient for me to decide that it's ugly without assuming that this has no beauty in it or something like this. Anyway. Um, the third point is uh, dimensionality. This is the last point. So uh, dimensionality in the sense that if something is unidimensional, like long or bent, there's only really one criterion that you're looking at to decide if the property holds whereas multiple dimensions 
multiple multi-dimensional adjectives involve multiple criteria. And there's a very interesting person working on this called uh, Galit Sassoon, um, who has looked for a variety of tests for the different, you know, universes multi-dimensionality. And one of them is that you can say things like, the sculpture is beautiful in every way, but you cannot say the vehicle is long in every way. And that seems to suggest that the sculpture is beautiful because of this or that or this other criterion, and the aggregate is what allows you to decide that the thing is beautiful. And that is obviously going to introduce cross-speaker variation. I mean, I think you guys have already acknowledged this. And, and I think that even with something like elegant, which is a relatively simple adjective, perhaps, like it doesn't have as many dimensions to it as perhaps beautiful does, you know, if you only have a few, it may be that you're already getting people reordering things a bit. I mean, that might give you just enough variation to bring your numbers down. I mean, it would be interesting to look at that. All right, so this is really the end of the commentary. So just to kind of summarize, um, there's definitely more to adjectives than the relative absolute distinction, and I think uh, the experimental work uh, shows that in a really nice way and raises a lot of interesting questions. Uh, still, I share the intuition that the differences shouldn't, I mean, maybe this isn't exactly the way to put it now that I've heard the talk, but I would say that even though there are these differences, we can still try to have a kind of general view of what processes are involved in calculating what exactly is meant and what standard, let's say, counts for the description of an adjective, despite the variety of adjectives. And uh, Isidora and I and another colleague of ours, Berit Gerke, have developed these ideas a bit in uh, looking at some more precise ways you can characterize the differences in adjective characteristics. So I do a little commercial for that paper as well, and I stop here.